so the theme of our exploration today is mindful social change. Um, <clears throat> and I love to teach this song that I learned at a workshop with Joanna Macy, um, who shared that it was sung uh, by activists uh, during Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. So being in the aftermath of many hurricanes right now, <laughs> and maybe connecting with our solidarity for all those in uh, Puerto Rico and Houston and Florida affected by those tragedies. So I'll sing a little bit, and then you can repeat until we learn the whole song. I'm going to let life move me. I'm going to let life move me. I'm going to let life stir me deep. I'm going to let life stir me deep. I'm going to let life wake me. I'm going to let life wake me. From an ancient sleep. Let's try those first four lines together. I'm gonna let life move me. I'm gonna let life stir me deep. I'm gonna let life wake me from an ancient sleep. I'm gonna laugh all my laughter. I'm gonna laugh all my laughter. I'm gonna cry all my tears. I'm gonna cry all my tears. I'm gonna love the rain as deeply as the sun when it clears. I'm gonna love the rain as deeply as the sun when it clears. Let's try the last four lines together. <clears throat> I'm gonna laugh all my laughter. I'm gonna cry all my tears. I'm gonna love the rain as deeply as the sun when it clears. Try the whole thing. I'm gonna let life move me. I'm gonna let life stir me deep. I'm gonna let life wake me from an ancient sleep. I'm gonna laugh all my laughter. I'm gonna cry all my tears. I'm gonna love the rain as deeply as the sun when it and then this part got added by our community in Blue Cliff Monastery. There's a little bridge, and it goes do 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 twice. Do 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 do. I'm gonna let life move me. 
I'm gonna let life stir me deep. I'm gonna let life wake me from an ancient sleep. I'm gonna laugh all my laughter. I'm gonna cry all my tears. I'm gonna love the rain as deeply as the sun when it clears. Do 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 <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> I think the, the mindful part of the title, Mindful Social Change, is about um, what I want to explore with you this morning is how um, that helps us to really see where, where we're coming from in our work, in our um, aspirations to to shift things in the world. So this is a, a very challenging time, I think most of us would agree. And, and it was challenging before also, right? Wasn't, it's, it, there are unique challenges now, but it wasn't like there weren't difficulties before. Um, but so even in this time, um, stillness can coexist with action. And I would say it's very important that stillness be part of our action, that they're not um, oxymorons. And so um, one monk from Plum Village would say non-action is not Inaction. Non-action is kind of held with inaction. So mindful action for social change is the kind of action that carries this deep wisdom of non-reactivity, non-discrimination, and non-separation. So it's lovely to see this statue behind me of the Bodhisattva of com- Compassion, um, Avalokiteshvara in, in Sanskrit. I think in the Zen tradition, is it Kuan Yin? Kuan Yin? Kan Seyun. Um, so in, in many temples in Asia, you'll see a, bodhis- a statue of the Bodhisattva of Compassion. And a Bodhisattva is an awakened being uh, who strives wholeheartedly to um, bring awakening to all beings. Uh, Sattva is being, Bodhi is awakened. So in many of these statues you'll see Avalokiteshvara with many thousand of hands and arms in a kind of halo around her body or their body. It's often transgender. The Bodhisattva can appear male, female, or or neither, or trans. But in the the hands, in the palms of the statue's hands, are often an eye. There's an eye. 
<clears throat> and it's the eye of wisdom that if we see deeply into the situation, then our action will be appropriate action. So what if we're in reaction and caught up in our own story and not seeing the complexity of the situation, then we might act with a very good heart, but not with wisdom. And so we can actually make the situation worse, prolong suffering when we're trying to help. And it's very hard to see a situation clearly. There's so many causes and conditions that go into creating the suffering that arises around us and inside of us. And the Buddha said, most of our perceptions are wrong. (coughs) So we need to act, we need to engage, and we also need to spend some time to try to see clearly how to engage, from which place in us to engage. Um, I shared this story last night with the young adults sangha, the wake-up sangha. I'll share it again as an example of this. um, It was uh, right after 9-11 and uh, 2001, and we were traveling up the coast of California, from Southern California to Northern California with with Thich Nhat Hanh, we call him Thai, means teacher in Vietnamese. And um, we heard about the attack and were deeply concerned. And a group of us, especially being from the United States, we wanted to act immediately and begin to draft a press release and go into our archives the next day and bring out material that would help Thai to respond to the, to the press and to, to the situation. So we went to Thai when we arrived in Northern California. Thai was going to give a talk at Berkeley, the, a Dharma talk, and we said we wanted to do all these things the next day. And Thai just said, no, okay, we're, we're all going to the beach tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, <coughs> He didn't quite understand that response. <laughs> and uh, we, we you know, felt like this is so urgent. And why the beach? Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, but he was our teacher. And so we all went to the beach the next day. And, and we had a really... Um, important time of connecting with each other and swimming and having a picnic lunch and relaxing and taking care of ourselves and really nourishing our togetherness and kind of comforting each other too. I remember hearing dolphins in the water as I swam and that was very comforting to me to hear that there were a pod of dolphins close by So we slowed down instead of speeding up, which we had been doing the day before. Um, (coughs) 
And then the next day we did everything we were planning to do, um, but it came from a different place. It came from a calmer, more solid, more joyful place. We were refreshed by that day. And um, I wonder what the action would have been like if we hadn't had that day, you know? So I, I learned a lot from how Thai responded and how he held his ground, because we were, you know, a group of us kind of putting quite a bit of pressure on him <laughs> to want to do what we wanted to do. Um, so he didn't, he didn't f fall into that. Um, of course he knew the situation was very urgent, and he spent, you know, not just the few weeks after 9-11, but years writing, responding, trying to offer teachings and guidance uh, that would help in the response to, to terrorism. <clears throat> but he was really demonstrating how to be clear about where you come from before you act. So, um, similarly, in, in during the war in Vietnam, uh, Thai founded the School of Youth for Social Service for thousands of young people who were getting trained to be social workers to go out into the countryside and build schools and hospitals and work with farmers to improve agriculture. Um, and also to rebuild and, and help people after villages would get bombed and people would be injured or killed. <clears throat> so it was really important work, what they were doing, saving lives. But every week they took one day of mindfulness to practice, to come to a center together to practice meditation like we're doing today, to um, reflect on the Dharma and to have a discussion with each other, to eat a meal mindfully, to walk mindfully. So even though it was, every day was an urgent need for intervention, but still they took one day a week to take care of themselves. <clears throat> and they knew really clearly that if they didn't have that day, they couldn't do the other six days of engagement that required so much um, energy and presence. So, A.J. Musti says, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. And the way the social workers were practicing in Vietnam was being peace in order to bring peace into the world. If, if we are harried and panicked and full of anger and hatred in our work for social change, it's really hard to create peace. Often we recreate the same systems of oppression that we're trying to address. So how we do it is, is as important as what we do. So the future is made up of the present moment. 
So what we want to have in the future, we need to create it now. We need to be able to touch it now. And it's possible to touch peace now, even in the midst of the craziness around us. That's what we're doing here today. And we can do that in our daily lives, the way we walk, the way we eat, the way we talk to people, the way we sleep and exercise and connect with nature. So we don't have to sacrifice this moment to have something that we want in the future. We need to have it now in order to keep realizing it in the future and build on it. So, so these social workers in Vietnam, they're young people. When a village would get bombed, they would rebuild it. This happened in one particular village in the south. The village was bombed, they rebuilt it. It was bombed again, they rebuilt it again. It was bombed again, and they rebuilt it again. I think maybe four times. So they weren't... Uh, saying, well, this just isn't worth it. They weren't rebuilding because they were expecting a particular outcome. They rebuilt it time and time again because that's what they needed to do, to have faith in and, and support the dignity of the people in that village to not succumb to despair. So there was no guarantee that their action was going to work or succeed and finally win the day. They just, no, we need to do this. So that's also uh, a manifestation of there's no way to peace. Peace is the way. Um, That we're not doing something with... uh, with conditions. I'll only do it if it works out in this way. Because if we do that, we will burn out very soon because things often don't go our way, especially in work for social change. If we, you know, if we, if it has to go well and succeed, We might not even try because we're afraid, well, this isn't going to work, so I'm not even going to do anything, right? So that's one way we kind of suppress ourselves or hold back. Or if we decide to go ahead and do it and it it fails, we, we are in despair. We lose all of our energy because we were basing our action on an expectation of a particular outcome. So it's it's like conditional love and unconditional love. It's, It's very hard to practice unconditional love. To work for change without being attached to what what comes next. But if we want to keep our energy our enthusiasm, our hope, our love, strong. We have to act with this hand, with this eye in the hand 
of the bodhisattva, which sees that no action done from a pure intention goes unnoticed in the larger scheme of things. Even if what we do seems to fail miserably, it's not a waste of time. If it's done to bring joy, to relieve <coughs> suffering, to bring about justice, then it's worthwhile, regardless of the outcome. And if we can approach it that way, we have limitless energy. I don't know if some of you know um, Brian Stevenson, who wrote a, a wonderful book called Just Mercy. And he works in Alabama as a, he's a lawyer, um, working often with people on death row to, who are wrongly imprisoned. And one in nine people who are on death row are innocent. One in nine. It's like Russian roulette with people's lives, mostly people of color who are poor. And some have, you know, mental disabilities, and they're being tried as if, you know. So he, he, this book is such a beautiful book, and he, he writes about his successes, but he writes about the people he couldn't save, and the enormous number of people asking and wanting help, and not, there are not enough people, not enough legal uh, aid to respond to all of the uh, you know, injustices in our criminal justice system, our criminal injustice system. <laughs> and yet, and there's this one very poignant part in that book, Just Mercy, where uh, he, just, he just attends an ex execution of someone who he has huge evidence is innocent, and he's not able to save him in time. And he comes back to his office, and he just wants to give up. He thinks, you know, this just is too hard. And I, you know, and he's doing this for years and years and years. And, and he thinks, right, I just I think I'll let this go. And it doesn't take but a few hours for him to shift and decide uh, this is simply work that needs to be done. And it's not about me. You know? And of course he needs to resource himself and take good care of himself in his work, but he, there's this shift where he comes to this really deep, dark point of giving up and then sees that um, he actually has it within him to continue. And I, I see that moment as a a shift from basing our work and energy on what is the outcome and simply trusting that I've been called to do this in some way and, you know, the failures are part of the successes. You know? There are tragedies that we're all witnessing and maybe you know, encountering in our own work. And, and yet, how do we tap into this deeper 
clarity about what is simply needed. Um. <clears throat> so, I think for me that story demonstrates that <clears throat> we can only really be truly free and deeply powerful in our action if we do it because it needs to be done. So this is, um, there's two books that I, I won't go into too much detail, but if you're interested in this, Margaret Wheatley has a book called So Far From Home, which is all about how do we create change. Um, and, and really stay aware of uh, this deeper reality um, that that the world is not very rational, that people come up with really great solutions and want them to be replicated, and people in power and leadership often don't listen and don't do what is really obvious. There's infighting, there's politics, there's uh, bureaucracy, there's, you know, lots of dysfunction that prevents things that are really working from, you know, regularly being implemented in other situations and larger scales. It's, you know, the world doesn't work always the way it would make sense for, for things to work. So she speaks about this very beautifully, um, how to be spiritual warriors versus trying to change the world. That we, we, ha we need to have this other attitude of seeing um, how to really keep our own freshness alive for the long haul, regardless of the outcome. And another book, also very inspiring on this is by Joanna Macy and Chris Johnston called Active Hope, How to Face the Mess We're In Without Going Crazy, which distinguishes passive hope, which is this, I'll only do it if I know the outcome is going to work, from active hope, which is this trust. I don't know. We don't have a blueprint for how things might unfold. We just have to take a step, get the feedback, recalibrate, take another step, and let the path unfold as to what's the right way to go. So this is a quote from Chogyam Trungpa in Margaret Wheatley's book, So Far From Home. He says, we cannot change the world as it is. You have to swallow a little bit when you hear that. <laughs> okay, we cannot change the world as it is. But by opening ourselves to the world as it is, we may find that gentleness, decency, and bravery are available, not only to us, but to all human beings. 
And this is um, Brazilian theologian Ruben Alves. He's talking about the source of discipline, where our discipline comes from. And he says, we must live by the love of what we will never see. So this vast trust. Letting go of outcome. So, <clears throat> I would like to ask you all um, if anyone is feeling overwhelmed in these times. If you could raise your hand if you're feeling overwhelmed. Okay. Thank you. Good to know we're in <laughs> like company. So this, this way of approaching how we engage, I think it helps with overwhelm. Um, and, and I'll share a story that's been coming up for me you know, in the last year <laughs> um, that I've been drawing strength from. Um, so I was a nun in Thich Nhat Hanh's community. And, um, for 15 years, and towards the end, I uh, just found myself really kind of in crisis of just trying to figure out if I was going to stay or if I needed to leave, and feeling very uh, bonded to everyone in my community and to my teacher, and very confused with you know these. Um, other wishes to, to leave the community. And so I was living at our monastery in Germany at the time, and we were going to have these two big retreats of about a thousand people each. Um, and I was usually in a role of responsibility for those retreats. I was, you know, an elder sister in the community and was the one people would often go to or, you know, knew to, people knew me, so they would come to me and ask. And so I thought, I just, with all the things that were happening in me, I thought I can't stay in the monastery for these two retreats because it'll just be too much for me. And so I went to the sisters before the retreat and I said, you know, I, I think I should go to our monastery in France or some other center and just lay low during these retreats. I, I really don't feel it's, it's, I can handle being here. And they were, were not happy about that and they... <laughs> They said, well, you should talk to Ty. Ty had just arrived from Plum Village, and they said, if, if he agrees, we'll let you go. <laughs> so I went to talk to Ty, and I told him, I was like, look, I'm just, I have no space inside. I can't possibly, you know, serve people or just be around with all the things that are happening inside of me. And, and so he listened, you know, very deeply as he does, and and then he just said, well, you know, you can stay. He wasn't telling me I needed to stay or I had to stay, but he was saying, you are actually capable of being here. You have the capacity to do this. And I was kind of like, I, I, everything feels so tight inside. There's just no, 
no room. And he, he said, this is exactly the time when you apply the basic practices of mindful breathing, mindful walking, being present with each moment, being there, letting your body and mind just be where you are. And he said, you don't have to lead a group or, you know, be in a usual role of responsibility, making announcements. He's like, yeah, you can take some space, but it's exactly in these moments that you need to take refuge in the basic practices. And something in me relaxed when I heard him say that, because I really trusted that he was telling the truth. And it turned things around inside of me where I realized I do have the capacity to be here. And I actually left that meeting feeling energized and more confident. And so I, I stayed for both of the retreats. I was not you know, in a, a role of responsibility for the first retreat. But I actually enjoyed both of those retreats. I tried to practice what he said. And, and there were a thousand people practicing mindfulness all around me. And that was very healing, very supportive of what I was going through. So by the second retreat, I was taking care of a group. And we had a great time. Um, so. <clears throat> so when we are feeling this overwhelm, this sense of it's just too much, what's happening around us, and we don't have the capacity to respond, how do we touch into that space? Because it's there. Even when the overwhelm is there, the sense of space, the sense of confidence, of strength is also there. It's not, you know, it doesn't die because overwhelm is there. It's just asleep. So how do we wake that up in the midst of our overwhelm? <coughs> so if we can breathe in and out, if we can put our attention on something that isn't overwhelming, we have a chance to center, to calm, to recalibrate our nervous system, and to see things actually differently. We can see things with the eye of wisdom. And we create space inside of us when we do that. So the external situation may not change, doesn't need to change for us to experience more space inside of us. And yeah, we can even change our experience of time when we shift our perception of, of what's happening. Um, because the feeling of, of stress, of time pressure, it's, it's mind-made. And 
Yeah, we can unmake that experience by shifting our mind. So when we slow down, we slow our breathing, we slow our body, we, we touch more, more space, more time. Because so much of our experience of overwhelm is how we are projecting into the future. And we, we narrow everything down because we feel fear. And so we, we project how, how the future will be, which, again, most of our perceptions being wrong, uh, we need to really question. Hmm. One, one last um, point I want to make about mindful social change, and then we'll have some time for questions and comments and sharing together, is <coughs> I think the ex- expression of um, really sustainable action for change uh, also needs to have joy, right? Like the going to the beach was about slowing down, was about stilling the mind, but it was also about nourishing joy. Like this song, you know, even in the midst of the devastation of Hurricane Katrina, there are ways to experience joy, and we need to touch that as well as our sadness. So another book that I really love on mindful activism, social change, is by Charles Eisenstein. It's called The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. And he says, let us be wary of any revolution that isn't threaded with an element of play, celebration, mystery, and humor. If it is primarily a grim struggle, then it may be no revolution at all. That is not to say that there is never a time for struggle, but to frame the transformative process primarily in terms of struggle reduces it to something of the old world. So he speaks about the old world of separation and the, the you know, where we want to go is one of interbeing, of seeing our interconnectedness. So if we're all about struggle, then we're just replicating this old picture of things being us, them, separation. So he says, the story of separation that is created, all the destruction that we see in the world, that's, that's the old world. Seeing things primarily in terms of struggle devalues other parts of the process. The gestation, the latency, pausing, the hanging out with, the coming inward, the breathing, the emptiness, the observation, the listening, the nourishing, the reflection, 
the playful exploration, the unknowing. Aren't these things that we could use a little more of on this earth? And he, he tells a specific story about this. Uh, he works with activists all over the world, and this is a group in Portugal who were becoming very burned out, um, and they were trying to address what was most urgent. Um, and one person was saying, I'm really excited to organize a time bank, for example. And the other people in the organization were, said, well, that's not what's most urgent. We shouldn't do that because what people really need is, you know, microeconomics or something. And so that person's idea, their freshness, would get, would wither because it wasn't the most urgent thing. And so their energy began to decrease. Uh, and they lost motivation, they lost hope. And they began to have more conflict with each other. And then they said, wait a minute, let's look at what we're doing. Let's really stop and see what's going on. Because they were having less of an impact, less people were um, participating in their work in the community. So they decided to um, prioritize each other, to prioritize their relationships, and to have fun. And to their, their motivation, their main um, criteria became, we're only going to do something if it really brings us joy. That was instead of saying, we're only going to do what's most urgent, they, were, they said, let's make all of our projects have to fulfill one main criteria, and that's that we really love that work. We really want to do that project. And that they were really going to take good care of each other. And if anyone wasn't doing okay, they would stop and really address the situation to see what they could do to support the person who was not doing so well. So then they began to get a lot more done. <laughs> they began to be much more successful and much more productive, and they were happier because of, because of how they shifted their way of doing it. So a similar story from a friend in England. I, I teach every year with a woman named Sophie Banks, who helped to start the Transition Town Network. So it started in Totnes in southwest England. This idea of having communities that were completely fossil fuel free, like not dependent on any fossil fuels in housing, in food, and in transportation. And this idea over the last 15 or 20 years has spread all over the world, and there's thousands of transition towns all over the world. They might be neighborhoods, they might be just communities that are working to um, be free of fossil fuels. So we teach a course together every year at Schumacher College on living a mindful life, inner and outer transition. And um, so she said at the very beginning of their work together as organizers, as activists, it was six months in, and she looked around the room and she said, 
How many of us are working in ways that are sustainable for six more months? And nobody raised their hand. And so she said, well, we really cannot continue like this. We'll all be burnt out in six months, and this is really important work. So they really stopped as an organization and talked about this and said, either we have to hire someone to help us with the administrative work, or we all have to cut back on our hours. And they were lucky enough to find funding, and they were able to find an administrative you know, help. And you know, from the beginning of their movement, she started another part that was called inner transition. Uh, or maybe it was called the heart and soul group. But they were really trying to care for the health of everyone as they were doing social change. Like that was an integrated part of the transition town movement. So what they discovered was instead of having each meeting be a doing meeting, where they talked about all the things they needed to get done and who was going to do them, they alternated a being meeting with a doing meeting. So the being meeting was listening to each other, hearing what was happening in each other's lives, addressing issues of power and conflict in the group, or how they could really, you know, celebrating each other, expressing appreciation for each other. It was sangha building. It was really caring for each other as human beings. And the next meeting would be, here's the agenda, here's all we need to do. <clears throat> and they would also assign someone in each meeting to not just take notes or watch time, or, you know, keep the minutes, but there would be a keeper of the heart in each meeting. And as tension would arise, this person would invite a bell or just raise everyone's, you know, put everyone's attention to, well, I feel like there's some, you know, heated emotions here that we might want to just stop and pause and address. So very healthy. So she has an interesting statistic. She says that the most successful groups are the ones that spend about 25% of their time on, group, on their own group process. So a quarter of the time is on how are we doing? How are things going between us? What can we do to support each other? How can we have more fun? Right? Um, so joy. Taking time for really caring for our relationships. Um, this is also in a, a project management system that I uh, learned a little bit about called Dragon Dreaming. Uh, they divide any project up into four quadrants. So there's the planning stage. There is the, um, not sure if I'll get them all right. Oh, there's the visioning, where you just let yourself see what it is that you really care about. There's the planning. There's the executing, where you do it. And then there's celebration. So one quarter of the time is you celebrate what you've just done. And within each quadrant, a quarter of that time should be on celebrating. So when you've done visioning, a quarter of the time is to celebrate the visioning you've done. When you've done your planning, 
a quarter of the time is to celebrate the planning. So you're celebrating all along the way. <laughs> okay. Um, so just some thoughts on mindful social change. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.